right. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders, where founders and operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Aaron Bray, co-founder and CEO of Phylum, which analyzes all major risk classes across the entire open source software supply chain. Today, we're talking with Aaron about the future of software supply chain security. But before we get into that, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to have you on. Let's set the table here for the listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in this space of software and security? Great question. So, you know, I started out my career working in the federal government space. I spent a good amount of time there. And that's where I sort of first got my my beginnings in software security and sort of the, the intersection of you know vulnerability research and malware analysis and software development. And, you know, effectively, I, I did that for a bit, ended up leaving to go work in industry for a few years, uh, along with my co-founder, Lewis. Uh, and then, you know, finally, I worked at a another startup for a bit, uh, which is where I first worked with my co-founder, Pete. And then we founded Phylum uh, just last May. Awesome. So three co-founders. Can you talk about how you met your co-founder? And, and was it like, we're going to start a company together from the beginning? Or, or did that sort of come later? Sure. So as I mentioned, I worked with my co-founder, Lewis, uh, back in the federal space. We spent a couple of years working together, um, you know, super impressed with his technical background. And of course, then we worked together in industry after that. But when we talk a little bit more later about, you know, sort of the origins of the company, some of the stuff that we did together in between working in government and then, you know, in the private sector, we kind of stumbled across the problem that we're working to solving solve today uh, as part of uh, part of Phylum's core competence. Uh, I worked with Pete later on, and you know, of course, his background is more on the commercial commercial security research and development side of things. Um, so you know, he has a lot more connections to industry. Uh, you know, much more background doing sort of enterprise and commercial sales and things of that nature, and. One of the things I spent a lot of time thinking about prior to starting the company and kicking off the business was, you know, really the major skill sets that we needed to fill in order to be successful. Um, So that was sort of the motivating factor behind those initial conversations around starting the company. Got it. And now that you're a living, breathing uh, company, can you give us the elevator pitch? What's the need for Phylum? Absolutely. So, you know, fundamentally... uh, Today, organizations rely more on open source code in most cases than they do on code that's been developed in-house. And as they've started to migrate more toward using these open source software packages and products, one of the things that's become apparent is that, you know, really this is untrusted code. This is code written by, you know, untrusted, unvetted third parties from all over the world. And, you know, in many cases, these people's, their interests and, you know, needs will often diverge from you know yours as, as someone who's concerned about potentially the supply chain of the software that you're developing and, and producing and giving to customers. And so really this creates a spot where there's a gigantic attack surface now with all these third-party contributors, and there's really nobody doing an effective job of policing it. Um, so at Phylum, we've taken a different and more holistic approach to really gauging the security and risk of these third-party dependencies. And can you continue by talking about the mission at Phylum? 
Absolutely. So more broadly, our mission is to secure the universe of code, which sort of is starting in this uh, this package analysis space. Um, you know, but really, we view the overall supply chain as being sort of a multi-dimensional, multifaceted um, thing. And so that's you know essentially where we're starting today. But you know, we're certainly not constrained to open source dependencies in the long run. And can you talk more about the need for this type of open source software chain security? And I have one question in mind uh, before we really get started. Is this for kind of like newer startups that are, you know, just writing their first lines of code? Should they be thinking about this? Or is this for more longer standing products that have been, you know, established on the market for a couple of years? I think, you know, really the answer to that is it impacts all spectrums of businesses from small to large and new to well-established. Uh, one interesting facet of this domain is this isn't really a snapshot in time problem. Um, you know, even five to six years ago, the amount of code that people were using, the amount of code, code in these open source ecosystems, and you know the, how connected they were. You know, that is to say, when you install a new package's dependency in your supply chain, how many things will come along with that package has grown to such a degree over the last couple of years. It's gone from something that you know, may have been somewhat manageable with a small team of security researchers uh, to being something that really can't be managed or monitored without significant amounts of automation. And, you know, just to kind of kind of concretize this a bit, uh, early on, we looked at, you know, a couple case studies of popular packages. And one that stood out, you know, because it's kind of a, a good example uh, is React. So this is a you know, very popular UI library. It was developed by Facebook. It's used by many organizations, large and small, all over the world. Um, if you visited Office 365 or Netflix or Amazon or a variety of other, um, you know, large, well-established websites, you've indirectly used it and you know been influenced by it. And this package, which you know, is maintained by a large corporate entity, has a big internal development team and a lot of budget relative to you know a lot of other open source projects. Um, you know, if you look at the things that it depends on and the packages that those packages depend on and the packages that those packages depend on, you get nearly 7,000 possible packages that come along that could potentially come along with React by adding it to your dependency chain. And to make matters even worse, you don't necessarily get all 7,000 of those packages at once. Uh, you get different subsets of that 7,000. So you may get one set of, you know, 1,200. Um, a friend may get a different set of thirteen or fourteen hundred, and you know so on and such forth, uh, depending on which versions and packages you already have installed locally. I'm quickly seeing the need for some kind of tool to manage this, or at least this grows in complexity quickly. So let's start with a high level overview of the application security testing space. How big is this space, and how quickly is it growing? You know, obviously, it's very large and continues to grow quickly. And that was significantly influenced by the events last year with the pandemic kicking off. Uh, the fact that more people were migrating to you know, virtual and cloud environments and sort of the development practices, modernization pushes that resulted from that has you know, pretty substantially boosted the trajectory overall of the application security testing space. And for like a you know a layman, could you explain basically like you know what is app application security testing? There are a lot of different terms that can refer to application security testing. Um, in some cases, you'll see product security or, or other things, um, but they generally refer to the same you know sort of 
broad brush thing, uh, which has to do with the software and products that a company is, is putting together and producing. Um, one of the big trends in industry, you know, effectively is trying to take and migrate from sort of the old way of doing project management and development, uh, which is, you know, waterfall, where you have many sort of gated steps uh, during the development process, of which security is generally one that happens toward the end, and they all kind of happen in sequence. Uh, modern environments have changed pretty substantially to now focus on you know, more agile development methodologies where you know builds happen very quickly, they happen often, and rather than going through this long, arduous gated process, automation is being leveraged at stage to stage to go very quickly from you know software development to um, you know commits to a series of code reviews and uh, continuous integration tests, then on to continuous deployment where you know organizations have gone from maybe having one build a week, two builds a week, to now having hundreds or even thousands of builds for very large organizations a day. Okay, let's focus on a particular a particular segment of application security testing. It's called SEA or software composition analysis. These are tools that help manage open source software use. Can you talk like what is SCA? What does it do and what are some of its use cases? So SCA generally refers to a class of products or tools that will essentially look at the bundle of materials that you pull in as you develop applications or products. So they will produce something that you might have heard referred to as a software bill of materials, um, you know, indicating the bill of packages that have been pulled in as part of your build. And often they will look at some very specific classes of issues that may occur with those packages. So things like known vulnerabilities, uh, as you know, the case with things like the Equifax breach, which happened a few years ago, and other incidents like that, where you may have old dependencies that are you know out of date and may have some security issues, or you know, in some cases, may have commercial license viability issues that may cause you some legal exposure risk uh, if you were to use those packages. And how does this SCA fit into the overall application security portfolio? So where SCA sort of fits in is as we think about the overall process of testing and gating uh, the application development, you know, going from first commit through the CI CD process and on into production, it usually fits in uh, during the sort of build and test phase where you'll see other products like, you know, static analysis, SAST, um, you know, container scanning and similar things, uh, you know, those things will all run during the build and development process, and they will weigh in on whether or not a build should be allowed to succeed and go into production. Uh, the problem with these sort of older style SCA tools, however, is sort of twofold. Uh, one thing, you know, that sort of sticks out is as we look at how big these software ecosystems have gotten and how connected they are, you now end up with, in a situation where you have tens of thousands, potentially, of packages that sit upstream from you know, even a moderately large project. And with these tens of thousands of packages, you now have tens of thousands of security vulnerabilities. And one big problem now is that you know, when new vulnerabilities emerge, it will typically cause a build to break. Uh, as these products were most 
you know, most generally designed to operate in the framework or context of sort of the last generation, uh, you know, in terms of how software development was done, where security is sort of a gate at the end, if that makes sense. So large projects, lots of potential security vulnerabilities. Was there a second problem? Oh, and the second problem that they typically address is they weigh in on things like, you know, commercial license issues. So, you know, for example, there are some there are some licenses that are included with software dependencies that may preclude them from being used in commercial applications without certain stipulations. For example, um, you know, there are a whole set of viral licenses that will require, you know, if you incorporate them into your application, that you disclose the source code of your application or, you know, and potentially any changes that you've made to the software that you're using along with it. Uh, okay, so you've done a great job of outlining the problems, the two big ones. Can you talk about the new breed of defense that is required today? Absolutely. So one of our findings early on was that, you know, now there's sort of a bigger need than, you know, just looking at known vulnerabilities and commercial license viability issues. So certainly those are part of the equation, but now there's this broader problem of what I'll call supply chain risk management. So, you know, understanding who's involved in producing the code that you're using, understanding whether or not it contains malware or vulnerabilities that might, you know, might not be documented in some of these sort of well understood and, and um, well curated databases. And even beyond that, some of the risks that come along with what we'll call engineering risks. So things like whether packages have been abandoned, uh, how well maintained they are, what kind of code coverage, you know, in terms of tests they have, how much the APIs change over time. Uh, all of these things have potentially significant implications for your development teams, um, their velocity in the future, and also the overall security of the applications that you're producing. That definitely makes sense. Um, all right. Well, I think I understand kind of the, you know, the lay of the land, so to speak, uh, and the need for, uh, well, not just the need for new technologies, but what we what you're bringing to the table. Let's talk next about your company, Phylum. What's the origin story behind Phylum? How did it get started? As Lewis, my co-founder, and I moved out into the commercial world, we did some consulting for a government customer uh, somewhere in the middle there. And one of the problems that they were trying to, to really get a good understanding was the supply chain of the software they were using. And, you know, they certainly cared about vulnerabilities and the software build materials and, and that sort of thing. But the question was a bit more broad. Um, you, you know, fundamentally, what does the supply chain for these software packages actually look like? And, you know, of course, the first pass was to try and identify some commercial capabilities that we could sort of stitch together to try and help solve the problem. And what we found was that there really weren't any commercial capabilities that did a good job of answering the question. And so, you know, well, at the time, we weren't necessarily sure if there was a broader need for something of that nature. Uh, you know, I started paying close attention to the space. And over the next few years, just saw the attack surface overall begin to explode as software became more connected and more organizations started relying on open source. And, you know, also the number of incidents have just skyrocketed over the last two to three years. Um, you know, of course, everyone's now familiar with the SolarWinds hack that happened back uh, close to the beginning of the year. 
and you know, following that, some of the big issues around things like dependency confusion and repo jacking and some other you know, pretty major attacks and classes of attack that have started to emerge. So you know, now there's a combination of <laughs> a lot of people paying attention to the space and a lot of attacks starting to occur. Um, you know, so we ended up launching Phylum in May of last year to, to try and sort of get ahead of what we saw as a, a major not just a major emerging threat vector, but, you know, something that's just a major problem across the board. So the next question I have in front of me is why is now the right timing for your company? I actually feel like you did a pretty good job of answering that in that last section. Maybe talk about like the initial results. Are, are you seeing any results that that show that the timing is right for, for Phylum in 2021? Absolutely. So, you know, certainly... At the stage we're at right now, we're at sort of the beginning of our commercial sales journey. So it's a bit too early to give concrete metrics on on that front. But we have gone from, you know, the very early days of the company with a bunch of incidents occurring, you know, to now having a great amount of, uh, of demand for the, for the capabilities that we're providing. Um, we're finding there's a lot of folks that are just frankly underserved by the existing offerings in the market space. One thing on your website I saw that's kind of unique and, and cool looking is the package score. Can you talk about the the package score, what it looks like, and um, yeah, what critical domains are you measuring and analyzing there? Sure, absolutely. So I, I kind of mentioned before that conventional SCA products sort of look at really two overall buckets of, of problem classes. So they typically look at vulnerabilities and you know also sort of the commercial license issues that might arise. So we take, you know, a, a bit of a more nuanced approach to this problem. Um, you know, thinking about how modern development processes work and how things have just changed very substantially over the last few years, there are two problems that immediately arise. Um, you know, so first, of course, those other buckets of risk that I mentioned before. Um, so risk around the authors and the, you know their contributions, which is more a measure of human behavior than anything else what we're calling engineering risk, which, uh, you know, sort of encompasses the stability issues that might arise from using a particular package. Um, the risk of sort of malicious code being inserted into a package that you're using, you know, either directly or far further upstream. Um, the, and sort of those conventional two buckets of uh, vulner known vulnerabilities and uh, license issues. Uh, those are sort of the five general domains of risk that we examine. And a few interesting cases around how we generate that score, uh, you know, certainly we want to be sensitive to the fact that modern organizations often will release many builds over time. And as a security product, if you give back too many false positives or break builds for things that aren't important, then you're not going to be able to, to make much progress with most modern development teams. They'll, they'll push back pretty hard. And in fact, you know, many problems arise with uh, providing back just too much output, uh, you know, for somebody to have to sift through. And so given all of this information, what we've chosen to do is, you know, take a bit of a different approach rather than saying, you know, everything is something that you need to look at right now. We've taken a bit of a more nuanced approach and, uh, applied something of a triage uh, to the process of, you know, giving back insights and indicators of risk. 
um, in those five domains that I mentioned. And so, you know, we make sure that the score is disproportionately impacted by critical findings like, you know, high severity vulnerabilities. Uh, if it looks like there might be active malware upstream from a project that you, you know, a project or package that you're using or something of that nature, then obviously that will make the score drop substantially, you know, as opposed to some, you know, more informational findings or things that might be risks in the future. So, you know, for example, with commercial licenses, we might alert you if a package that you're using has no license because, you know, well, today it may be something that's in the public domain. In the future, the author may choose to apply a more restrictive license that you will then have to abide by. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's really interesting how you've, you're taking a more nuanced view, right? Giving it a score. Can you talk about the decision to make it a score? Did you ever did you ever consider having it as an, a, a zero or a one, an all or nothing kind of thing? So we did think about that early on, uh, but one of the major problems that we've seen with a lot of security scanning products is that they tend to produce a great deal of output. Especially when you consider that, you know, now you're looking at potentially tens of thousands of packages in, you know, large projects. And so, you know, it ends up being after that point, someone's job effectively to go through and figure out whether or not you even need to look at those problems and try and mitigate them. And so one of the sort of big important pieces I think that this brings to the table is it gives us basically a way to quantify how important a particular finding might be to your organization. Uh, and one of the things that we've sort of done here is we've, we've built some tooling to allow, you know, customers to essentially tune this and figure out, you know, okay, if the package score becomes back as a 50, should we then allow this package to be used or should we break the build now and take a closer look at it and, you know, see what may have happened. Um, one of the ideas here was actually an inspiration from other parts of the security industry. Um, you know, if you're familiar with products like Snort or Bro that work sort of in the IDS and IPS space, um, you know, you have basically a split between products that will, you know, tell you this is a finding. It's definitely malicious. You know, it's very, very much signature based. And it's sort of either, as you mentioned, a, a one or a zero. And, you know, then you have products that are more like Bro, which tend to just classify traffic, you know, network traffic as being weird or normal or abnormal. And so, you know, similarly to try and get around this sort of signal to noise um, issue and, you know, realizing also that not every incident or not every issue is something that, you know, the broad spectrum of, of customers will actually be concerned with or will need to fix immediately. Um, you know, we chose to make it a continuous value score uh, rather than a binary one or zero. Um, and, you know, one of the other things that we're rolling out in the product very soon um, is our rule engine, uh, which will allow us to take and apply what we call deductive analysis. So the findings that we surface are not simply based on one thing. Um, they're actually sort of a, a combination of findings generally. So the, you know, analytics that we run across the entire open source ecosystem, you know, those generally give you a bit of evidence that you might be able to use to support an argument that something is good or bad. Um, and so what we do is, you know, we take those findings and we sort of stitch them together, you know, to, to prioritize and surface how significant those findings might be. So, you know, for example, 
the fact that a package that you're looking at using is abandoned, you know, may not really be a big issue because as it turns out, a large percentage of the open source ecosystem is abandoned. But if you couple that with something like the fact that that package contains a security vulnerability, well, you know, now that security vulnerability and the fact that that package is more aban is abandoned, you know, becomes something much more significant because now you have a security vulnerability and the likelihood of it ever being fixed or remediated is very low. Well, you know, thanks for breaking that down. You know, the, the total package score looks great. I encourage anyone listening to, uh, you know, go to Phylon's website, uh, learn more um, for themselves. But uh, yeah, thank you for breaking that down. Let's take a look under the hood. Uh, talk about your technology stack and what kind of important choices did you have to make early on? One of the problems we found early on is the volume of data that we're dealing with is is very large. And so, you know, we looked at a few sort of commodity graph databases like Neo4j uh, early on in our design and development process. And what we found is that as we started looking at more and more of the ecosystem, there ended up being too many connections for most of those solutions to model. So we had to move to, you know, more of a traditional uh, sort of data lake sort of configuration um, with products like, you know, HBase and HBase and Spark, um, you know, just due to the volume of data that we need to process and consume. Okay, interesting. I was, uh, I thought you might talk about your own open source software packages and uh, using, making sure those are secure. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we certainly, we certainly dog food our process, our product as much as possible. Uh, you know, we, we don't quite have support for all of the languages that we incorporate in the platform today. Um, but as we bring more and more, um, supported languages online, we definitely incorporate our own insights into, you know, into our build process and making sure that our product is secure. All right. You went with dog food. I was, I was hoping, um, I was, I had my money on drinking the, drinking the Kool-Aid, but, uh, <laughs> you went with dog food. No, I, I think that's really important. You know, this type of software sounds like it could be used by, I, I don't even, there's no boundary, right? It's like any software company today is using a lot of open source software packages. So let's keep going. What are some of the key milestones that you've achieved, uh, you know, along your journey to this point? You know, certainly probably the biggest are, um, you know, one of the things that we did was we tried to get our product into the hands of design partners as early as possible. So that was probably our first big milestone uh, after incorporation and, you know, getting our sort of initial pre-seed funding. Um, another big one is, you know, we just closed the seed round a few months ago. Um, so, and then now, you know, sort of getting our first iteration of the product out and moving into commercial sales, uh, you know, is, is probably the biggest one yet. All important milestones to hit, and we're excited to see you guys continue to grow. Next, let's talk about the people bef behind Phylum. Just talk about your team. W what kind of considerations did you make um, when setting it up, and, and who do you have aboard? Absolutely. So uh, I already kind of mentioned our, you know, my co-founders, and a, a little bit about where they've come from. Um, so some of the important considerations there certainly were you know, making sure that with our initial founding team that we could cover all the bases we needed in terms of strategy and planning and, you know, go to market. Um, and as we've moved forward and hired, you know, even on the technical side, there are a lot of challenges around making sure that, you know, we can cover the bases we need for the product that we're building. Um, interestingly enough, 
it, it's a bit of a difficult problem because it cuts across a lot of different disciplines from you know things like more conventional program analysis to big data analysis to you know data science and machine learning and so you know we've been very fortunate in being able to attract some of the talent that we have uh, early on um, you know, we've also hired a VP of operations who's helped us a lot on sort of the positioning, uh, framing, initial go-to-market side of things. Um, you know, and we're excited to bring on a few more folks to help out with, you know, sort of the initial sales process and, you know, really getting the word out. Awesome. That looks like a great team. Next, let's talk about your customers. Who are your typical customers and why should they, you know, invest in, in this solution that you've got? As it turns out, our sort of ideal customer profile, um, at least today, doesn't really have any constraints around you know, specific market verticals. Uh, we segment a bit more based on their AppSec maturity. So groups that have more mature AppSec programs you know, are the ones that you know, tend to be ideal customers for us today, uh, you know, especially due to the fact that many of them um, you know, are the groups that are somewhat underserved uh, by the other offerings in the space. Um, you know, that's not to say that we aren't angling for, you know, the broader market in general. As you mentioned earlier, you know, the problem that we're solving is one that really applies to every organization that does any amount of software development. Uh, I think you can probably, you can probably name very few organizations today that don't use some open source in their stack. Next, could you describe the use case of, you know, a happy customer using Phylum and, and what that looks like in a day in the life? Really, we've identified sort of two broad use cases. Uh, we have some organizations that we're engaged with that have much more mature programs, you know, where they have maybe even a team of people dedicated to the problem of open source governance. And, you know, so that's going to be a bit of a different case than, you know, the general organization that has a, you know, small to medium security team and is, you know, really trying to understand what, what application security even looks like. And so, you know, sort of for the first case, a lot of times those groups are most interested in the data that we collect and some of the insights that we sort of put together. Uh, and, you know, so in those cases, really just providing access to the data and insights we collect and, and enable are the things that they're most looking for. Um, in other cases though, you know, we fit in everywhere from, you know, pre-commit hook you know, on a developer's workstation, all the way through the, you know, test and deployment processes in CICD for, you know, other, you know, other parts of the organization. Uh, one of the interesting nuances to this and, and something we had to be careful about designing for early on is the fact that there are almost no two organizations that have the same tech stack or process in place for, you know, software development in CICD. Can you talk about who's buying your product? Is it somebody, you know, kind of in the in the DevOps realm or is it more, you know, somebody in the in the chief suite, C suite, um, who's ultimately making the purchasing decision? In sort of our early engagements, a lot of our entry points have been through either somebody, you know, with like a CISO or AppSec director job title, um, or somebody maybe on the engineering side in a few cases. Um, you, you know, but I don't think that necessarily precludes somebody lower down in the stack. You know, somebody who's maybe a DevOps or security engineer person, or maybe even a software developer from um, from being our our purchaser at the end of the day. Okay, let's keep going. I want to talk about the go to market and business model you've got. So, what's your go to market strategy? 
as we get off the ground and with our initial sales conversations, most of our go-to-market at this point is, you know, we're targeting people that work in very AppSec forward companies, uh, groups that, you know, certainly feel a bit underserved by a lot of the existing offerings. Uh, you know, longer term though, as our as our product continues to grow in terms of features and, you know, and languages and other such things, we have a, sort of a broader strategy to provide a lot of features that are compelling for sort of the technical implementers um, at the bottom of the stack, the security engineers, the developers, um, you know, and people who are trying to put together really processes around making sure that their, you know, not just their open source, but their entire software supply chain is, is secure and protected. Yeah. And how, how are you reaching those, uh, those particular people? So our initial customers, you know, and the people that we're engaged with today, in most cases, they're people that we're pretty tightly connected with. Um, so, you know, I mentioned that you know, Pete, my co-founder, spent a lot of time working in the security research and consulting space. And so a lot of the people that he worked with early on, you know, are now in some of those roles that we're targeting at, you know, at places that are very security forward and have a strong appetite for the type of capabilities that we're bringing to the table. Uh, longer term, as we are really first and foremost a, a data company, you know, we collect data from the open source ecosystem and really our entire products is built on the back of analytics and heuristics, machine learning models and deep insights into the data that we're, we're examining and looking at. You know, that really opens the door for more of a content driven strategy. And so, you know, as we continue to pull out findings and points of interest in the open source ecosystem over the process of, you know, building analytics and heuristics and, and helping engage with customers, you know, that will really enable us to um, spread the word, so to speak. Um, who are you, who are you competing against? Is it legacy solutions or, you know, new solutions such as yourself? Honestly, I, I think today where existing solutions exist in customer tech stacks, it will mostly be legacy vendors. Uh, we have not really found another organization that is doing exactly the same thing that we're doing today. Um, so, you know, certainly we can provide some of the same insights that some of the existing products do. Um, but another interesting feature of, of how our product works is that we're actually able to sort of turn those things off and come in alongside um, if someone's using some legacy product. Do you worry about different, like if you're not seeing competition such as yourself out there, do you worry about differentiating yourself or is that not a concern? Um. There, you know, we certainly were very cognizant starting out of not trying to create a whole new category of product uh, for obvious reasons, because you know, that creates a lot of issues when it comes to, to trying to close sales. And so, you know, we started by building what we consider to be table stakes capabilities in some of these existing, you know, existing spaces within the, uh, within the application security testing space. Um, but, you know, certainly all of these other things, which I think, you know, I think the fact that there aren't other products doing exactly the same things that we're doing today that are well-established at least uh, is more a symptom of the fact that the the specific problem that we're solving only recently became a big enough problem that you know automation at scale really had to be applied in order to solve it. 
if you look back, you know, five, six, ten years in the past, when most of these, you know, sort of legacy vendors were established, the landscape was just much different. Um, you know, just to give some context around that, if we look at, you know, the JavaScript ecosystem and NPM, and you know, in particular, which tracks fairly closely in, in terms of, you know, growth rate with many of the others, um, you have something like twelve thousand five hundred packages, you know, back in twenty fifteen. And today you have somewhere around 1.5, 1.6 million. Um, you know, so just there's just been an incredible amount of growth, both in the volume of software and how connected it is and how many you know, average dependencies each package you pull in might have. I mean, yeah, that's, um, that's very different, just orders of magnitude. Absolutely. All right, now the money question. Talk about how you make money. So we are a, uh, at least today, we are a SaaS offering. Um, you know, in part for obvious reasons, uh, most people are, are likely not going to be willing to dedicate the amount of storage and compute uh, that is required in order to be able to process uh, the amount of data that we do. And so, you know, notionally, we charge per seat uh, in terms of licensing, um, you know, for software developers and, and security folks. Um, and, you know, uh, effectively, that's that's it. Let's move on to sort of the closing questions. What are some challenges you face as a founder that keep you up at night? So, you know, I think, you know, certainly one of the big ones right now is absolutely hiring. Um, you know, there's a lot of money pouring into the space today. And, you know, so making sure that we're able to continue to grow and retain talent as we move forward as a company is, you know, certainly a big one. Um, we've had... A few decisions that we made early on that have helped us out a great deal there, uh, you know, in addition to the fact that we're solving, uh, you know, solving somewhat of an interesting problem. <laughs> um, but, you know, making sure that we're able to continue to do so into the future is is something that, you know, I, I try to be very cognizant of. Okay. And as a, you know, co-founder and chief executive, you know, I'm sure you run into a lot of blockers, challenges, and, you know, maybe you wish things were a different way. So uh, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing today, um, whether it be like, you know, something about your industry or something about some constraint you, you run into, um, what would you change? Oh, man, that's a, that's a great question. So, you know, honestly, I, I think in terms of, you know, timing and trends and everything. It's, it's a bit hard for me to imagine, you know, what things I would specifically change that would put us further ahead, <laughs> you know, or would make things better for us, um, you know, in terms of where we are today and, you know, how old the company is given, you know, we just, I think we're maybe just over a year and four months old. Um, so, you know, we've, we've made a ton of progress and, you know, are very excited about the future. Um, and last question. Is there a question I should have asked about open source software chain security that I did not? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it's a bit difficult to answer. I mean, you know, there's maybe, maybe the best thing to look at now is, you know, where the gaps continue to exist. Um, you know, and I, I guess I think I mentioned earlier on that one of the things that we view um, you know, at least through the lens of software supply chain security is that, you know, it's a very multifaceted, multidimensional thing. 
you know, there's not just one answer to the to the overarching question. Um, you know, open source packages are certainly part of it, um, but there's a whole host of other issues that surround things like developer tools and you know, build attestation, and you know, those are certainly places that we're we're really interested in growing into in the future. All right. Well, uh, maybe once you do, we'll uh, have to, we'll get you back on for another podcast. <laughs> So, Aaron, uh, thank you. It's been a great uh, it's been a great time chatting with you. Before we get out of here, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you and learn more about Phylum? And certainly, the website would be a great resource to start with. Um, you know, we have a, a few spots where people can reach out and engage, and uh, you know, would love to uh, would love to speak to anyone who's interested. Okay, uh, what's the best way? Is it like an email, Twitter handle? What do you like? Uh, email Twitter handle is perfect. Um, there's also some forms directly on the website where people can engage mm-hmm. and uh, get in touch with someone from our team. Fantastic. All right, Aaron, thank you. Uh, we're going to end it there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating there. Um, Aaron, thanks for joining the show today. We appreciate your time and uh, excited to see where you go from here. Thanks for having me.